Charter schools have enjoyed steady and relatively rapid growth for most of the past decade, with the annual growth rate in the number of charter schools hovering between 6 and 9 percent from 2007 to 2014. But that growth has slowed markedly since, dropping to roughly 2 percent on average over the past three years. Why has growth slowed? And what can charter leaders, funders, and policymakers do to regain momentum? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Robin Lake, director of the Center for Reinventing Public Education at the University of Washington. Along with three colleagues at the center, Robin is the author of a new article, Why is Charter Growth Slowing? Lessons from the Bay Area, which will appear in the summer 2018 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Robin, welcome back to the Ednext podcast. Thanks, Marty. It's great to be here. So your article is motivated by the national slowdown in charter growth I just described, but you chose to look at this issue through the lens of the Bay Area, this five-county region in and around San Francisco. In part, that's just to make the task manageable, but why is the Bay Area a good place to study this topic? Yeah, well, actually, one, one person we interviewed referred to the Bay Area as the canary in the coal mine, <laughs> the charter movement, which I thought was a pretty um, apt um, description. You know, um, charter growth has been booming in the Bay Area for the past 10 years or so, and um, with very good results. So there have been some excellent charter schools that have replicated and expanded, Things have been going great, but recently there's been a drop in the number of um, uh, new schools opening and uh, in their overall enrollment. So um, we were interested in knowing what was going on. So it's not quite a, a drop in the number of students enrolled quite yet, right? It's it's just that the it's growth has slowing, stalled. Right. It's slowing of growth. So things are still growing, um, both in new schools and in overall enrollment, just not as quickly as before. One of the things that seems to be the case nationally and in the Bay Area is that there's a bit of a lag between slowdown in growth in the number of charter schools and then changes in trends with respect to charter enrollment. Uh, yeah. That, uh, I don't know, enrollment continues to expand as charters that were opened in prior years roll out additional grades, get up to full capacity. Um, but So that tends to be more of a lagging indicator, I guess. Yeah, and that um, actually was different, a different scenario in the Bay Area. So that was um, interesting to look at from uh, to compare to the national scene. And um, when we dug underneath the, um, the enrollment questions by talking to schools that were operating one of the things they pointed to was just they had plans to expand but weren't able to for one reason or another. So let's come back to that in a minute. First, tell me a bit about how you and your colleagues went about investigating the San Francisco slowdown. Yeah. Well, you know, um, through talking to a number of people nationally and in the Bay Area, there were a bunch of different hypotheses going about um, what might explain the slowdown in growth. And so people speculated about things like, well, is parent demand slowing? Are good applicants being black, blocked by their authorizers who may be more hostile or more bureaucratic in their expectations? Um, are fewer people just interested in starting schools and going on to other endeavors? And so our approach was to be open to all of those possible explanations, but spend time 
doing interviews with um, existing charter operators as well as some folks who had thought about opening schools but didn't. Um, and then looking at a bunch of different data sources, including, including authorizer data. And, you know, it's impossible to absolutely nail down which factors are responsible for what, but we did feel we were able to eliminate a lot of the hypotheses that were going and quickly zeroed in on a few things that seemed to be um, really driving the slowdown and expansion. And at the very top of your list is the issue of facilities, right? Yeah, and I don't think that surprises anybody who um, has been following the charter movement. You, you can't really – facilities are a hard stop on growth, right? You can't open a new school if you don't have anywhere to put the kids. And the um, – you know, um, anybody who's familiar with the Bay Area also knows that um, facilities are hard to come by. It's a very, very expensive market. Um, now, that was something that was uh, um, a lot easier for folks to navigate when it was just a small number of charter schools, but now that there are so many in the Bay Area and there are um, so few places that are suitable for housing a, a good school um, and at such great expense that things have just gotten very, very tight there. I agree that that's not much of a surprise to anyone who's followed the charter school movement nationally and in the Bay Area you would expect to be uh, particularly challenging. But one of the things that I found interesting about that is I recall California got a lot of credit from charter proponents for passing something called Proposition 39 uh, about a decade ago, I believe, that essentially required districts to provide facilities for charters if they were under capacity, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Prop 39 has been a big factor in fueling charter school growth in California. Um, and that continues. So a lot of uh, charter schools are housed in district facilities for that reason. Um, what we're seeing is that um, that those you know, kind of the, the spaces that were um, the districts thought of as sort of, you know, buildings that were easy to offload or they wanted to get rid of anyway have kind of been um, taken up and they're just harder to come by. So we're, um, we're getting reports from the charter schools that districts are much more inclined now to um, find ways um, to refuse access to Prop 39 buildings or excess buildings. And so sometimes they'll do things like offer a new charter school space, but it would be maybe 30 seats in one school, 30 seats in another school, and 30 seats in another school, all located in different parts of the city. Yeah, not a great game plan for a school that wants to have a strong, cohesive culture. So technically, they're complying with the letter of the law, but perhaps not with its spirit. Yeah, that's right. And the second set of barriers that you talk about, you sort of summarize as challenges that are coming internally from competition among the existing charters, what beyond facilities are they competing for? Yeah. So, you know, I really think of this as um, sort of a natural evolution of the charter sector, a lot of maturation questions uh, that folks are grappling with. Um, one of the factors in California, um, I've heard this in other states, is that the new um, results from the Common Core tests 
I think it's SBAC in California, have given a lot of the charter providers pause about whether they're really getting their kids um, sufficiently ready for, for college and career. Um, and so taking time to look internally at their instructional program, which, you know, is a big endeavor, um, that's one of the factors that's causing a lot of pause. And they're saying, you know, we love, we want to keep growing, but right now we want to get our house in order, make sure that we're, we're growing in the right direction instructionally. There's also an increasing amount of competition um, with other charter schools in the Bay Area, such a high concentration of folks, especially in certain neighborhoods, because they're all kind of looking, looking for neighborhoods that are affordable where they can locate. Um, and they find themselves often competing with each other for talent, for students, um, for facilities. And so that's, um, that's causing some folks to pause as well. Um, so there, there are a lot of just um, kind of a lot of fatigue, um, I would say, in thinking about this is, people said to us, this work is so hard already, just running great schools and replicating with integrity. And when you layer on top of that the cost of doing business and finding great facilities um, and the political dynamics, then, um, uh, you know, it's a lot easier to kind of hunker down and just get things right within our school than, than to think about expanding. Now, I imagine throughout the history of the charter school movement, some organizations have been pausing on growth to try and get their affairs and programs in order. Uh, it raises the question why we're not just seeing new entrants at this time uh, to sort of continue to drive overall growth. What's determining whether new schools are getting off the ground in the Bay Area? Yeah, well, of course, new schools are continuing to open, and there's been... Um, an increasing amount of investment in in uh, leaders of color in the Bay Area, as well as some innovative new designs around personalized learning. So, uh, some of that is happening. Um, but the the third factor that um, that really came through for us when we we, we thought about kind of the, the trifecta of, of issues that are at play is politics, and um, that is. Um, not only a barrier for existing schools that want to expand, but a barrier for folks who want to uh, get into this work. And so, um, you know, all politics is local. And um, in uh, Oakland, for example, where there are uh, there are so many charter schools operating, um, the district is finding itself in financial um, hard times. Um, for a variety of reasons, um, and layered on top of that is a, a national um, set of politics around school choice. You know, some folks said to us, "Look, um, you know, I could um, uh, I could go into the ed tech world. I could work for a district school, and I'd be, you know, um, a hero and cool and." Um, right now, when I tell people at a cocktail party I want to open a charter school, I'm the bad guy. So that's a that's a real chilling effect. I don't, you know, I think people who are determined to serve kids better and to find the right mechanism are still going to find their way forward. Um, but it's not an easy time to uh, to take on that work. Now, one of the things you claim in the article is that the slowdown isn't being driven by a lack of demand on the part of families. 
Um, at the same time, you did note that some of the charters where there was a heavy concentration were increasingly competing for students. So help me reconcile right. those two things. Yeah, is yeah. it really a mismatch yeah. in demand and supply in terms of where the location is? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we kept hearing this word oversaturation. Uh, people used it pretty broadly. And when we dug into that and asked them, you know, what do you mean? You think there are too many charters in the Bay Area? They would say, no, there are still, you know, great demand for charters. There's still great need for charters. But what's happening is that in specific neighborhoods, um, uh, people are kind of, you know, all fighting over themselves, over the same building, the same staff, because that's um, the only opportunity for for getting off the ground. So it's very neighborhood-specific, and um, it's very area-specific. So um, one of the things that, of course, drives growth um, in the charter sector is investment from funders. And um, funders have set certain priorities about where they would like to see new charter schools open. Um, That's where things are getting really tight. Um, Everybody is trying to locate in the same cities and even in the same neighborhoods. And so what we um, we often heard from operators was um, that they have an interest in looking to new places, uh, places that uh, might be more open uh, politically to new charter startups, um, that might have you know better access to facilities, that kind of thing. Was there anything that surprised you, any factors that you expected to come up that didn't turn out to be contributors? Mm-hmm. Well, I do think that we expected to see, um, you know, um, more schools struggling, you know, just to um, to attract parents, um, and we didn't hear that so much. Um, that you know, we did hear really strongly that parents still are interested in this option. Um, one thing that really surprised me was um, we didn't hear very much about hostile authorizers. Um, now, that um, that's not to say that um, that they don't exist. School districts in California are the primary authorizer, and districts have historically not been all that open to charter school growth. Um, but what we heard from folks was because California has an appeal mechanism where, where folks can go to their county or, or to the state if they're turned down, that that's um, uh, authorizer options are, if, you, if you're running a great school uh, and you'd like to run a good school in the Bay Area, there's a, there's a path forward for you somehow. So that was surprising. One of the things I noticed uh, was that it didn't seem to be that the charters were having trouble attracting enough uh, talent, at least if by talent we mean teachers. Right, yeah. I mean, what they told us was it's an ongoing struggle. Talent's always a challenge, and especially in a strong economy. People have other options. Bay Area is obviously an expensive place to locate, but what they've really done generally is turn to internal growth strategies, and so um, they're training their own folks and um, they said, you know, it's an ongoing challenge, but it's nothing that has changed dramatically over the past few years. So your article looks both at barriers as well as potential solutions, way to break, ways to break down those barriers. What is to be done if we want charter growth to resume at a steady clip in this region and perhaps beyond? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the first step 
is always to admit you have a problem. <laughs> and so I think, um, you know, the strategies that folks have employed over the last two decades are probably reasonably not the right strategies going forward. And so um, we have really urged that people start thinking creatively and in innovative ways. Um, I mentioned that um, operators would like to think about looking to new areas where, um, for example, the, the ring suburbs, places where low-income families are being pushed out of the city and um, you know, starting to move into the suburbs seem like a, a good opportunity for them. Um, and so they're looking to new places um, and or getting smarter about advocacy in the places where funders are prioritizing seemed like the first step. Of course, it would be easier for them to consider new locations if funders were open to them doing so. Yeah, that would be a necessary step. <laughs> that would be a necessary step. Absolutely. And in addition to this article, you and Paul Hill have written recently about the need for a new political strategy for charters nationally. You just referred to trying to find new ways to be effective in the places where they already are with respect to advocacy. What will that entail? I think that the charter movement has really relied on kind of an urban, low-income um, selling point, which is the right, right thing to do for kids, right? That's where the immediate need is. But the truth is, if, um, if the movement is going to be sustained long-term, a broader set of parents um, and political leaders need to be able to understand how charter schools can help them too. So thinking about um, looking to places where there is need, um, just about every community there are kids who aren't being well served for some reason or another. Um, maybe it's because the child has special needs or is located in a rural area and doesn't have access to really rigorous curriculum. So we're really urging people to think about um, a broader, broader set of strategies that can um, serve more, more kids and build a more stable constituency. And presumably that wouldn't immediately change the political dynamics around charter schools in Oakland, in San Francisco, but is the hope that over the long run it would sort of change the uh, policy image of charter schools, the breadth of support statewide? Yeah, that's right. And I and I don't think it means giving up on low-income kids and urban kids. I mean, the, their needs need to be solved, and um, the street fight will always be the street fight and needs to be done. Uh, but at some point, folks are beating their head up against the wall if, um, if strategies, you know, not allowing for growth. My guest today has been Robin Lake, director of the Center on Reinventing Public Education at the University of Washington. Her article, Why is Charter Growth Slowing? Lessons from the Bay Area, is available now at educationnext.org. Robin, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks a lot, Marty. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or another platform so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, be sure to check out our archives, where you can find each of the more than 100 episodes we've recorded since 2015. Talk to you next week.